As has been mentioned by some other uh, teachers, I, however, will do my best to attempt not to go on and on and on. Because I know you've had three very filling meals, and you've sat a lot, so we're going to talk about some perks of the kingdom, okay? Some perks of the kingdom. And a, a perk, obviously, is some benefit, something you get. You know, all of us, uh, most of us that have jobs, we would look at some of the things that happen in that job, then we would see them as perks. Maybe they're financial, maybe they're uh, intrinsic, but somehow there's something that, uh, that you feel you gain from that that was maybe not necessarily in the job description, but you gain from that somehow. So let's talk about some perks of the kingdom. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, Jesus says, But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Can anybody remember what these things are? What, what is He talking about right before that? Food, raiment, right? The necessities of life is what He's talking about. He says, if you seek this, if you seek the kingdom of God, these things will, it'll be okay. It'll be alright. He doesn't talk about you'll be the wealthiest person on the block. He doesn't talk about you'll have the nicest car in town. He doesn't talk about you'll be able to take that third vacation next year. Or have that second house by the lake. What he says is you will have everything that you need. Philippians chapter 4 verse 11, Paul wrote, Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned whatever state I am to be what? Content. Content. He told Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6 verse 8, And having food and clothing with these we shall be content. So the seek, seek ye first and you will have this is not about all the stuff that I may want to have. It's about what I need and it's about contentment. See, one of the things we have to remember when we're talking about perks of being in the kingdom, and this seems to be something as I look at various Facebook posts and reposts and shares and all kinds of other things like that. Yep, I do the social media. As I look at some of the things that some people post, we forget, I think, sometimes that being a Christian does not mean that God is promising to solve all of our, your problems. God is not your genie in a bottle or in a lamp. That is not His purpose. He's not there so that when I get in trouble, I can give it three quick rubs and I get three wishes. God never, ever in the entirety of Scripture promises that to me or to you. He doesn't say He will solve all our problems. In, instead, we're told things like 1 Peter chapter 4. Beloved, do not think it strange, odd, concerning the fiery trial that you're going through. Don't think you're different. As though some strange thing has happened to you, verse 13, but rejoice to the extent that you partake in Christ's sufferings, that when His glory is revealed, you may also be glad with the exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, now this is a different situation, if you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you. 
want you to think about that for a second. Because we just had a lesson that addressed a situation in the world today, specifically in our nation, that causes us to sometimes be reproached for the name of Christ. Instead of complaining about it, or getting upset about it, or laying up at night worrying about it, we should consider ourselves blessed that we're being treated that way. Because it means we're doing the right thing. Verse 14 again, If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, He is blasphemed. See, they think it's bad to follow this God that doesn't believe these things or doesn't allow these things. On their part, He is blasphemed, but on your part, He is glorified. Verse 15, But let none of you suffer... As a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, a busybody in other people's matters. In other words, don't suffer for doing wrong. Verse 16, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. You remember what Paul and Silas were doing in prison when they were being persecuted for the cause of Christ? Were they sending out Facebook posts saying, woe is me? Were they complaining to their next-door cellmate on how unfair they were being treated? Did they complain to the jailer that they should be let free? They hadn't done anything wrong. What did they do? They glorified God. They glorified God. Bad things will happen to you, just ask Paul. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 24-26. I'm not going to read it, but that's Paul's listing of many of the things that happened to him because of the cause of Christ, because of what he was doing. He didn't consider it bad that it happened to him. Was it enjoyable at the time? I doubt it. But he found glory to God in it. <laughs> Those don't sound like perks, Doug. That, that sounds like trying to mentally alter my own reality so I turn something that feels like it's not so great into something good. And there is some of that to it. But there are some perks. What can we gain? What is to be gained? There has to be something that God will give us for being so different from the world. For sticking to the truth. Well, the first thing He gives us is love. He allows us to enjoy a greater love than we could ever find from any other human being on the face of the planet. It cannot be found in any other relationship. I don't care how much you are best friends with somebody. I don't care how great your marriage is. It is not as great as the love that Christ has for you. It just isn't. John chapter 15, verse 13, Greater love has no man than this, than to lay down his life for his friends. So in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, we're told God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, what did Christ do? He died for us. God's love for us, if you'll allow me to use this word in this way, I like this word, but not the way some people use it. God's love for us is so radical isn't it? Radical, meaning over the top, different, unknown, unbelievable. 
God's love for us is so radical and overwhelming, where else are we going to find that? We're just not. We're just not. I love my wife dearly. I cannot love her as much as Christ did. Because I cannot give my life for her before I ever knew her and when she hated me. I hope she never did, but that's a different story. God gives us freedom. This has been addressed some already, and I love that this has been talked about. Because this is something, this is a buzzword that's going around. I want my freedom to live my life the way I want to. That's not freedom. We can enjoy a greater freedom than any government can ever give us by giving ourselves over to God. John chapter 8, verses 31 through 36. Then Jesus said to the Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word and are my disciples indeed, and you, you are my disciples indeed, sorry, verse 32, and you will know the truth and the truth shall make you free. We had that used earlier this, this weekend. Verse 33, they answered him, we're Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? You hear the, the arrogance and the pride in that statement? We've never been in bondage to anyone. Did they know their history? Evidently not. Because I remember reading back about God having to deliver them from Egypt by the hand of Moses. And I remember reading about all kinds of times after they took over the land where because of their sin they were carried off into slavery, into bondage. These people were just simply lifted up with pride. There's no truth in what they're saying. Jesus had just said, you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. And they're pinning their hopes on reorganized history. Because it's not what was reality. So verse 34, Jesus answered them, Most assuredly I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of what? Of sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. If the son makes you free, Anybody here ever been a slave? I wasn't very many hands. Jesus just said, if you've ever committed a sin, you are a slave to sin. And the only way, the only way a slave can be set free is if the master allows him to leave. Sin's a hard master. The only other way that a slave can be set free is if somebody stronger comes in and removes that slave from the slave relationship and makes them free. Therefore, the son, if the Son, Christ, makes you free, you are free indeed. Romans chapter 8, verse 2, For the law of spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from what law? The law of sin and death. The law of sin and death. No human or human organization can ever free me from my sin. 
They can make me free from many other masters, but they cannot make me free from sin. Human forgiveness is always incomplete. It just is. Because as much as we... I I love this how this is overlapping. As much as we would like to be able with our sin and with other people's sin to have an eraser and wipe it away and forget about it and never approach it again, my mind doesn't work that way. Paul's mind didn't work that way. Paul remembered every one of his sins. Sometimes I wonder if he went to bed at night hearing the screams, hearing the cries, hearing the stones as they hit Stephen's chest. Human forgiveness is incomplete. But the Son was able to set him free and give him complete and ultimate freedom. We can gain a potential and a purpose in our life that is vastly more important than the physical. We all hope for ourselves and for our children and our grandchildren and our everybody else we know and care anything about that they will find a purpose in life, that they will find a path for their life, that they will be productive in their life. We want all that for them and that's great. But what is greater than a spiritual uh, potential and a spiritual purpose. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, Paul tells us, For we are His workmanship, created in, God, created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God has a, a purpose and a potential for our life if we'll follow Him. If we'll give ourselves over to Him. We were made in the image of God and are more valuable to Him than anything else on the earth. If we can't understand and see that from the Scriptures, then we're missing one of the major points of the Bible. We are greater than the lilies of the field. We are greater than the cattle on a thousand hills. We are greater than the the birds that God might feed. We are great enough in His sight. We are important enough in His sight that He sent His Son to die for you and for me. We were made to worship and please God and there is nothing greater on this earth than fulfilling that purpose. We can have an inexpressible joy and a lasting peace. And if you don't think that the world is looking for this, then you haven't been paying attention. Everybody in the world wants joy. They want to be happy. Everybody in the world wants to be able to live at peace with their neighbor. That's why we fight wars, right? So we can have peace with people. Human logic defies us sometimes, doesn't it? Now don't don't go saying, Doug's saying war is horrible. I'm not saying that. God fought many wars so His people could live at peace. But that's not true joy and true peace. First Peter chapter 1, verse, starting with verse 6, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. See, grieved by various trials. Verse 7, That in the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory 
at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith. What's the end of our faith? The salvation of your souls. God doesn't promise me that I'll be happy tomorrow. What he promises me is that I'm going to have various trials tomorrow, that I'm going to have to grieve for a little while, that I'm going to have issues in life that I have to deal with that are not going to be pleasant or easy to deal with or fun. But in the end, if I get through it as gold tested in a fire, I will come out the other end with an inexpressible joy that's wrapped up in my salvation. That's why he says in Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, if you can do that, is that easy? Not for me. But if you can manage that, if we can pull that off, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, which tells me I can't find it anywhere else, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard my heart and my mind through Jesus Christ. Disappointment and stress have become assured realities in today's world. We all know that. That is what we get when we put our confidence and trust in men and man's wisdom. We're doomed to heartache. Putting our confidence and our trust or our faith in God removes disappointment and stress and replaces it with joy and peace. An understanding, both right now, of some joy and peace, but a true understanding of freedom to be able to experience future joy and peace. And that's the last topic. One of the biggest perks of the kingdom is that we can experience and spend eternity with God. Somebody show me a better retirement plan. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 11, He has made everything beautiful in His time. Also, He has put eternity in their hearts. Except that no one can find out the work of God, the work that God does from beginning to end. I can't get that on my own. It's there. He's placed a sense of eternity and longevity and something hereafter within me, but I don't know what that is outside of the knowledge of God and of Christ. Romans chapter 6, verse 23, For the wages of sin is, of, is death, but the gift of God is what? Eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. First Corinthians, uh, yeah, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, As it is written, I has not seen nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love Him. See, this eternity, this joy, this peace, I can't completely comprehend it. It surpasses all wisdom and knowledge. It surpasses my ability to understand it. What I have to know is that everyone will experience eternity. Everyone. I don't care what time frame you've lived in. I don't care who you, 
who, who you are. I don't care what you believed while you were here. I don't care what you worshipped while you were here. It makes absolutely no difference. If you were present physically on the earth at any time in history, you will experience eternity. Those that serve God will be in His presence forever. That I know. Those that reject God will experience an eternity without Him. That I know. And if I believe all the other things, that's all I need to know. If I serve Him, if I stay true to Him, if I put my faith and trust in Him, then my eternity will be full of love and freedom and potential and purpose and joy and peace. If I don't serve and trust in Him, my future will have none of those things. There is an interesting passage that I like to play around with sometimes. Revelation chapter 21, verses 16 and 17, when John is describing the new Jerusalem as it's coming down. He says, The city is laid out as a square. Its length is great as its breadth. And he measured the city with the reed, 12,000 furlongs. Its length, breadth, and height are equal. Then he measured its wall, 140 cubits, according to the measure of a man, that is, of an angel. You know, God could have done a lot of things in this passage to try to explain us, and he gives us measurements. Now, I don't, I don't think those measurements are literal, so don't get me wrong. But just for a little bit, humor me. Because I like math. And I want to do some math with this for just a little bit. For those of you that have the word furlong in there, the Greek word is the word stadion. Furlong is kind of an odd uh, measurement, but a Greek furlong was about 606 feet. So 12,000 furlongs is about 1,377 miles, which means the city is that cubed. 1,377 miles wide, 1,377 miles long, 1,377 miles high. Is that big? That's pretty big. That's about 1.9 million square meter, miles at its base, the flat part at the bottom. Uh, let's see. I did some of this. It's about 1,600 miles from Kansas City to L.A., so that'll put it in perspective. The contiguous U.S., if you take out Hawaii and Alaska, is about 3 billion, no, sorry, 3,119,884 square miles, so the city, if it was sat down on the United States, would cover about two-thirds. Most airliners fly at about 7 to 8 miles above the earth. So when you see an airliner fly by and you can just see this little speck at the end of the long trail, that's about 7 miles up. This city goes 1,377 miles. So add a few. This is kind of the fun part. As of this morning at 8 a.m., I don't know if you realize this, but you can go online and look at a UN world population clock ticking off how many people are in the world by the second. keeps changing all the time. As of 8 o'clock this morning, because I wanted to get as close as I could to where we are right now, as of 8 o'clock this morning, that's the population of the world according to that clock. 
about 7.365 billion people. If the cubic miles of this measured heaven, which is about 2.6 billion, were divided evenly among each person alive at 8 o'clock this morning, assuming all of everybody alive at 8 o'clock this morning made it into heaven, each person would have about a third of a mile by a third of a mile by a third of a mile. Is that enough room? Is that a big enough mansion for you? Now please remember all the other wondrous descriptions of what God says. Streets of gold, gates, jewels, beautiful things. Now is all of that literal? I want us to think about two things concerning this. Just like much of the book of Revelation, this is not meant to be taken literally. What God is trying to explain to us is the size of heaven and the true gift that it really is. The the greatest perk of the kingdom is something we will never see unless we stay in the kingdom. We have to get all the way to the end. God has said, few there be that find it. I don't know how many people will make it, but I do know that few there will be that find it. God is trying to let us know. I don't care how crowded the situation you live in is or how much space you think you really have. There is plenty of room. God's made sure of it. God's made sure that you have something waiting for you. So there are only two options at the end. Heaven with God. He calls that eternal life. Or hell without God. He calls that eternal death. Which do you choose? Which do you choose? As we close this evening, don't go away without choosing. You get to pick. You get to pick based on your choices, as Wade was explaining earlier. Removing sin from your life, allowing God to wipe away the sin, allowing Jesus to give you freedom, to give you hope, to give you joy, to give you peace. Don't turn that away. I don't care where where else you try and look for those things. You will not find it. Who do you choose? If you choose Christ, then we invite you to come forward as we stand and as we sing.